Westmount invites you to take your Bible, your copy of God's Word, and turn to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, that's where we'll be this morning. Isaiah 44 in the Old Testament, the first of the great major prophets, Isaiah 44. So turning there, Westmount, let's consider a few opening things. First, this, that we were made to worship God. We were made to worship God, the true God, and God alone. As such, if we were to worship anything else, we would say, and it is true, that life does not go well. Life does not go well. That's right. It's as simple as that. Worship God, and it will go well with you. Worship anyone or anything else, and it will not go well with you. It's as simple as that. That truth is so simple that it is taken for granted by God's people. People that would profess worship of the one true God. Those people, like us. For Christians, it is often the case that we, they, all of us, do not give this thought enough, this foundation of worship. Some just walk through life, living life, without any pause to reflect on worship. No maintenance is given to this area. For some, they don't think about it at all. All the days look the same. The routine is the same. For others, they don't have time to think about it. All the days are a blur. And so, a lack of reflection on worship is easily missed and easily masked with what? The normal. The normal. But what happens when the normal is interrupted? What happens then? What happens when the normal becomes the abnormal, which is precisely what is going on today amidst this pandemic? Church, when all the distractions and covers are removed, our hearts are exposed. Yes, when challenging times press in, our hearts and our worship, to be more precise, is exposed. And for some, that presents a crisis, does it not? Life is interrupted and things don't go well. Interestingly, though, as we consider that truth, maybe that's true today, interestingly, this is a time when life should be going well, right? You'd say, really? Yes, this time of pandemic and shutdown. I mean, think with me for a moment. Those that were busy, those that claimed busyness, their calendars are suddenly what? Empty. They have a whole bunch of time on their hands. Even more, we're told to stay at home. Think about that for a moment. We are being told to stay at home. Isn't home the place that we all long for? Isn't that what our hearts tell us so often? People want to just go home. Whether it is the rebellious school child or the weary traveler, everyone just wants to go back home. Home. So when we think about that, we might ask, then, what's wrong? What's wrong? Why, then, if all of these conditions are conducive to things that we've wanted, why are you suddenly more irritable? Why are you more grumpy? Why are you even angry? Why? Why does it seem like your frustration is growing? And Westmount, why does peace in these times seem so elusive? I will suggest to you this morning that it could be a result of your worship. 
your worship. And this virus, far from bringing sudden trouble into your life, far from that, this virus has only exposed trouble that's already been there but has lied undetected. As a result, you need spiritual first aid. And again, as we've been doing in this series, we need the treatment that only the Word of God can bring in such times. Now, before we start and begin to administer aid, a couple opening remarks and comments are necessary with the topic of worship. Number one, worship is a matter of concern for everyone. For everyone. Worship concerns everyone. We have commented on this so much at Westmount, uh, and it bears repeating on a morning like this, and it's this fact, we were made to worship. Every human being is wired to worship. God made us that way, so it stands to reason that we'd all worship. It's not a matter of if you worship and some aren't worshipers. No, humanity, every human being worships, worships. So worship is not just a topic of concern for some, but it's for all of us. Friend, you are today worshiping someone or something. You are doing that right now. You're worshiping someone or something. Your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your time, your money, your energy will tell you what that is. It will become clear. In fact, if you just do that simple inventory on those things, it will paint a very clear picture for you of the object of your worship. Which then leads to our second introductory remark. Worship's a matter of concern for everyone, that's one. But two, wrong worship, wrong worship is a possibility, right? Because we can all worship, but we can all do it wrongly. And even more, and here's the point, wrong worship is a matter of idolatry. Wrong worship is a matter of idolatry. Yes, we are simply calling it what the Bible calls it. Worship of anything but God is idolatrous. And church, if we are sinners susceptible to the flesh, as we saw in our Galatians study, then it stands to reason we are all capable of idolatry. This is why you see idolatry pop up over and over again on those so-called vice lists, those sin lists in the New Testament, because it's so prevalent. So prevalent. Yes, idolatry is sin. Idolatry is sin. As Christ followers, that must get our attention. It must. Yes, we will get practical and we'll talk about why we might be frustrated, why we might be irritable. We'll do all of that. But let us not lose sight of what is at the root of that, what could possibly be that you have undetected thus far. What lies underneath it, behind it, fueling it is idolatry, quite possibly. And idolatry, Christian, idolatry is not a pagan thing. It's not an unbelieving thing. It's not a non-church thing. No, you never see that in Scripture. The word is always associated with those that would profess to be of God. Idolatry then has always been a sin thing. First and foremost for God's people. From Israel to the church, idolatry is our problem and why. It is true, many others worship many things, but they do so in ignorance for many. But for us in the church, we know better. We know what the primary object of our worship should be, the primary person of our worship. Christian, we can say it this way, we should know better. That's why idolatry is serious for us. Again, we expect many others to worship many things, 
money, celebrities, materials, and so on. Not us. Not us. You would expect, again, humanity, again, wired to worship, to do things. I think of Romans 1.25. It says, humanity exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So that's your indictment on all of humanity. But Romans goes on to say, but not us, because of the grace of God, not us. We expect that of those unregenerate, but it should not be true of those regenerated. Our hearts are enlightened. For us, Christian, it should be different. Why we profess worship of Creator. We are God's people. We declare allegiance to Almighty God alone. We have forsaken idols, and we confess Jesus as Lord. Yes, we profess that worship, but... This is what we need to ask this morning. It often doesn't look that way, though, does it? It doesn't often look that way. Church, we're not alone in that malady. As we said, it is true of the church now, and it was true of God's people Israel then as well. How often, when we think of the Old Testament and the Old Testament account of God's people, is their journey interrupted over and over again by idolatry? Whether it's grumbling over water, bowing down to golden calves, or adopting Canaanite gods, over and over their idolatry is on display. And that idolatry may have gone unnoticed by them. It may go unnoticed by them, but it never goes unnoticed by God. That is why there were prophets sent to call God's people back to him. The prophets over and over again say, come back to God, return to God. They're given messages to proclaim for God's people to forsake their idols and return to God. That's what you see the prophets do. You see them proclaim in every book, recognize who God is, remember your God, repent of those idols, return to me, God says. And that call is precisely the call we will see in the chapter that you have open in front of you today. And what is helpful about Isaiah 44 is not just the exposure of Israel's idolatry. I've mentioned already, we see that throughout many places of the Old Testament. This does that, as you'll see, and that's helpful in a sense. But what's helpful about Isaiah 44 is the exposure, not just of, the, of Israel's penchant for idolatry, but the exposure of idolatry itself. This is like zooming in on what idolatry is. God puts idolatry, God puts that in focus here. It's as if God says, you really want to pursue idols? My people, is that what you want to do? You really want to pursue idols? Well, then let me tell you about idols. Let me show you them. I can tell you to forsake them, but let me show you why, why you must forsake them. That's like what this chapter will say. And that's what God does here as we drop into this portion of Isaiah. Now, a few comments about where we're dropping in and the time that this prophecy was written. We're looking here at 8th century B.C. for the nation of Israel, a time, ironically enough, not long before the fall of the northern kingdom and really the beginning of the crumbling of uh, Israel as a nation in that land period that would begin for the next two or three centuries. But just before all of that trouble starts, it's a, a time of unbelievable prosperity for the nation of Israel. I mean, in so many ways, they are prospering, military-wise, economically, politically. uh, Really, it is abundant prosperity. That's the time that Isaiah is speaking into. The nation is flourishing. 
And that first insight, in, in fact, Westmont, just consider that fact about what we're parachuting into. Is that not even helpful insight for us today? Because it's true, and this is the first insight I'd submit to you, idolatry and prosperity often go hand in hand. Idolatry and prosperity often go hand in hand. Why? Well, the more we have, the more we cling to. The more we have, the more we cling to even more. The more we have, the more we seek those things for deliverance. It's true in a prosperous environment, as we're going to see shortly. You know, I had many conversations with many of you. I've been thinking about this myself. One of the reasons why this virus is particularly hard for the West is because we're so prosperous. In one sense, think about what you have. Think about this. You, for many of us, we have our health. Even those that have gone through the virus come out and they're, they're well again. You have roof over your head. You have access to groceries. I mean, we had a little blip there, but now we still have access to food. You're being told to stay at home with your loved ones. A lot of people have this time. And yet, and yet, we are saying over and over again what this is so challenging. This is so hard. Westman, I would submit to you, only in the West, only in a first world, would we ever profess to have that kind of a trouble. There's some regions of the world that would say, wow, you're relegated to those luxuries. And I think I only say that to say, as I am with you, I've shared with you, this begins to tell us where the problems might be. Take away the things that we cling to, and that's what you have. You know what's interesting? 400 years ago, one of the reformers, a man by the name of John Calvin, said this. Think about this. This is four centuries ago. John Calvin said this. Our hearts are idol factories. 400 years ago. Think about how primitive things were 400 years ago. Beloved, if that was true four centuries ago, with far less pulls, far less distractions, let me ask you something. How much more is that true today? Today our hearts are not just idol factories. Today our hearts are idol manufacturing plants. That's what they are in this prosperous environment. Church, even worse than that saturation is a production, a mass production going on inside that we're completely fooled by. An operation going on right under our nose within our own hearts. An idle output that, again, we miss so often when we are distracted. But idolatry, here it is, idolatry that has nowhere to hide when you are self-isolating. And again, we have another reason to be thankful for this time of virus. Indeed, we do. God causing us to stop, take stock of our lives, at what we've been missing in prosperity. God forcing us to look squarely at our worship and confronting us with our idolatry. As he does here in Isaiah 44, God opens this chapter with a resounding declaration. Let's not miss this as we set the table. This is a declaration of who God is, but listen, Westmount, it's nothing new. This wouldn't have shocked the Israelites, and it shouldn't shock you. This is Theology 101. This is the God you know. Look at it, starting in verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself, 
by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Westmont, just look at those opening eight verses. Let me ask you something. Who is the focus of these verses? Who is high and lifted up? Look at verse 1. God says, I, note the pronouns, I chose Israel. In verse 2, God says, I formed you. I help you. Look at verse 3. God says, I give water. I pour out my spirit and my blessing. Verse 5, God says, you are my possession. He goes on to say, you will say, I am the Lord's. What of verse 6? He says, I am the first, I'm the last. Besides me, look at this, besides me there is no God. Who is like me? And then in verse 8, he asks rhetorically, is there a God besides me? In other words, no, no there isn't. You stand alone. In other words, in light of all that God is and has done, what does he do? In other words, we would say even further, this is who I am. And let me show you why I and I alone am worthy of worship, your worship, your exclusive worship. That's what God is doing here in these opening verses of the chapter. This is who I am. God saying, let us talk about worthy worship. Let us talk about what should be the object of your worship. Let's talk about a creator. Let's talk about a sustainer. Let's talk about a sovereign. Let's talk about an all in all. But Israel... We would say by extension today, in principle, but Christian, we know this stuff, don't we? But so often, it stays on the shelf in our heads, does it not? We know it, and we can give the right answers, but something happens from head to heart. We profess worship of God, but instead, practically, we worship something else. And against this backdrop, God will now demonstrate how foolish that is. How foolish that is. And that brings us to our first point about idolatry and this examination of idolatry. Number one, idolatry is empty. Idolatry is empty. Let's pick up this account in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall, they shall be put to shame together. As we now go deeper into this chapter, let's set the scene. The, the setting here is an idol maker's workshop. That's your setting. It's an idol maker's workshop. You have craftsmen, you have their companions busily at work. Busily working away in this workshop. Lots of work to do, right? Fashioning idols is a big business, and it certainly would have been in the ancient Near East. Creating them from iron and wood, big, big business. Busily, they're working away. Looking very occupied, industrious, looking very productive. Today, such a busy scene would be applauded, right? When you think about that industry, that productivity, who could knock such work? 
Yet God has a commentary to open the scene. He says in verse 9 that the object of that work, the idols they delight in, do not profit. Do not profit. In other words, it looks like productive work, but God says it's not. It's not. There is no profit here, God says. In fact, as busy as this scene appears, it's quite frankly empty. It's empty. What a picture. Church, that is your picture of idolatry. All that energy. All that fussing around. Yet it's bankrupt of any return. It doesn't matter how busy it looks. It doesn't matter how industrious it feels. It's bankruptcy. There is nothing but emptiness being churned out here. Can you see this picture? Lots of craftsmen busily at work, but it's nothing but emptiness. Consider this testimony of a pathological idolater at the end of his life. You know him, King Solomon. Do you remember his testimony at the end of an idolatrous life? Idolatrous life? Ecclesiastes 2.11. I considered, King Solomon says, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, right? In other words, this is King Solomon, busily doing this in his life, making idols. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Remember in our Ecclesiastes study a few years ago, we learned that that word vanity means empty, meaningless. That was the theme of Ecclesiastes, and it's the same thing here. All this toil in that idol workshop is vanity. Idolatry is empty. It promises and looks like it will return much. That's the thing with idolatry, but it never does. In light of that, you'd be right to ask, who spends this much energy on doing nothing? Who does that? That's a great question. It's the question God asks. Look at verse 10. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? The answer, as the Old Testament tells us, is God's people. Like King Solomon, like the nation of Israel. That's who. Church, such empty, idle productivity from God's people is still the case today. Again, let's be clear this morning. This is not just an ancient Old Testament thing. We still have idle factories today. And the bankruptcy of our output, if it was true back then, listen, in this time of pandemic, it's never been more true than today. The bankruptcy of our output. How many of you, how many of us are looking for returns on our idle investments? We're looking to cash in right now during this time of pandemic because we've expended a lot of energy and toil on things. But the returning void. The countless hours spent on so many other things when times are good. And we hardly notice in good times that we have nothing to show for it. That's the mirage of prosperity. You never recognize you're getting no returns for it. It's only when life is compromised do we start to see the evidence of emptiness. God says, look at it twice in verse 11, that those engaged in such profitless endeavors will be put to shame. In other words, all that effort to produce and have the manufacturing of all of those idols, no matter how busy it looks, all that effort, all that emptiness is simply shameful. It not only doesn't add up, it's embarrassing. COVID-19 has exposed the emptiness of so many hidden idols, has it not? It's done that. Like the idol of safety and security, just to name a few, this would be at the top of the list for so many. It doesn't matter how many risk assessments on your life you do. It doesn't matter how much you bolt your front door. All of that has come back empty, has it not? 
you feel more at risk and at threat than you ever have been. What about the idol of leisure? The idol of leisure. Do you remember all those plans you were making earlier this year, last year, about all the leisure things that you were going to do this spring, this summer? Well, what happened to that? They've returned empty. And what about the idol of health? You've lost track of your internet searches on your symptoms and your health, trying to make sure you don't have this, you could have that, all of those things. And then all of a sudden, it's not about checking symptoms. It's not about fearing what you read. You're living in a constant threat that the next statistic could be you. All returning empty. I mean, there's no end to the idols that have revealed the emptiness of our labor and work. That's what this time of pandemic has done. But again, Westmount, listen, we don't stop there. Again, we stop and we thank God for this opportunity. I ask you this, would you have had this inventory, this assessment in times of prosperity, in times of good? If the pause button wasn't hit, would you have had this inventory? You wouldn't because we get busily in our workshops and miss what's right under our nose and our heart. That's because idolatry is empty. That's one. Second point, idolatry is not just empty. Idolatry is illogical. Idolatry is illogical. Let's pick it back up in verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. What a picture. Again, as you come to these passages, just speak for themselves, right? God here takes us deeper into this idol-making workshop. We see two types of craftsmen at work. Two types. First, we see the ironsmith fashioning his idol with hammer and heat, right? What a picture. So hard at work that there's no time for what? He's so hard at it, no time to eat or to drink. I got no time for that. He's far too busy for that. He has something to build. And so the basics get neglected. He grows weak. Soon his strength fails. And shortly, shortly he what? Faints. Church, this is not a noble picture. This is not the hard man collapsing at work. The hard working man to be lauded. No, this is a picture of foolishness. This is folly. The onlooker might ask, what's so important that it keeps you from eating and drinking? That's a great question, isn't it? What is so important that it keeps you from eating and drinking? Without that, nothing else is important, you would say. That's how illogical idolatry is. Working away on our excessive desires, all the way neglecting our basic needs. And when our basic needs aren't met, what happens? 
we collapse and we fall. Again, COVID-19 has revealed this illogic to us. This virus has shown us that we are absolutely deficient in our basic needs. Absolutely hurting in our basic spiritual needs. It takes a global shutdown for us to see how lacking we are, not in bread on shelves, but in the bread of life. It takes a pandemic to remove everything else but the bread of life to show us this. As we busily hammer away on the idols of work and family, we said, there's no time for being fed spiritually. I have no time for my Bible. Sure, we would never say those words, right? But our actions betray us. Our day is too busy. Our weekend, far too packed for time in the Word. God understands, right? And now you're fainting because all that time and obsession spent there robbed us of the time we needed on our basic fuel to live here. Longer hours working, extra hours visiting kids, visiting grandkids, obsessing about calendars and get-togethers and so on, all at the expense of time spent with the one who gave you those things. And this is where we have to heed the pictures here, friends. Those idols may seem innocent enough, right? Work and family, I mean, it doesn't get more innocent than that. But listen, they are still idols. And I know what you're saying right now. You're like, really? Family? I mean, I love my family. What's wrong with that? Westmount, let me be clear. Nothing. Nothing is wrong with loving your family, and you should. However, there is something wrong with that love when it exceeds your love and devotion for God. There is something wrong with that love. Christian, let's put it simply and let's put it biblically. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections. Here it is, more than God. Your heart is swept away and wooed by many things, but if it's wooed away to the point where it elevates the affection for God, that's an idol. Yes, even family. Do you treasure God more than your spouse? Do you treasure God more than your kids? Do you treasure God more than your grandchildren? Sure, you can love them to bits. I know. But if you don't love God more, listen, look at the text, you will faint. You will faint. Even more, if love for them is more than love for God, then that's not just malnourishment. The Bible says that's idolatry. Let me give you one passage to prove that. Luke 14, 25, Jesus, midway through his ministry, and he had to do this often, had to clarify, had to clarify the cost of discipleship, what it means to follow him. And in other words, inoculating against idolatry. Let's parachute into a conversation he's having with his disciples, with those that believe in him, that are following him. He says this, Luke 14, 25, now the great crowds accompanied him and turned He turned to them and said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's right. That's what Jesus said. Now, let's be clear. The point of this passage is not hatred as we know it for family. That's not what Jesus is saying. In other places, he talks about loving them and honor. Children, obey your parents. Parents, love your children. The point here is the chasm between the two. 
The chasm must be so far between the two that it's almost like love and hate. That's the huge picture God is showing, and and that truth alone convicts us to our knees. Is there a chasm between your love for God and everything else, including family? Is there a gulf so wide nothing can cross over it? Or is your love for God just slightly higher than everything else? Even then, Jesus says, that's not my disciple. That's not my disciple. That's just one room. Let's look at a second. There's another room here in Isaiah 44, another room in this workshop. Look at verse 13, and you'll see the carpenter. We saw the ironsmith, now we see the carpenter. Not just diligent. This carpenter is not just diligent, but precise in his work. This is what we need to see with the carpenter. He's precise. Careful to mark his lines and measure his angles. That's his concern for his work. And what is this carpenter making? It turns out, look at verse 13, turns out to be a figure of a man. And what is the destination for that carved figure of a man? Look at it, to dwell in a house. To dwell in a house. His idol is himself. He wants to create a God in his own likeness for his own home. Just amazing. And does that not sound familiar? To create a little God, to put it in his house, to cherish it. And look at it, does that not sound familiar? The late Warren Wearsby once said this, I quote, God made people in his own image, and now they are making gods in their own image, unquote. Indeed, that is the picture here, with all its illogical force. To make this idol, this man will take a piece of wood from a tree that he's cut down. And with this log of wood that he planted, he planted it, he cuts it, And he's going to do two things to this log that he's chopped down. Verse 15, with half of it, he'll kindle up a fire. And he's going to warm himself over that fire. He's going to bake bread over the fire. But then with the other half, he literally just cuts it in half. Same log, just chopped in half. One half, taking care of some needs like heat and food. And the other half, what does he do with that? Well, he'll make himself a god. And with the other half, you know what he'll do? He'll fall down before it. Half of verse 16, he burns in the fire to cook food. The other half, verse 17, he makes it into a god for worship. This bizarre scene is capped with this prayer to this newly created idol. Out of a log, out of a log, this prayer, look at the end of verse 17. He turns that half of a log and he says this, Deliver me for you are my god. That's right, the man who just created that idol from a log of wood now turns to that log of wood. Picture the folly of the scene. He turns to a log of wood and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. That picture would be hilarious if it wasn't so pathetic and tragic. Is that not true? At church, before we wink at that carpenter, I ask how different are we? Has this pandemic not revealed that our craftsmanship is just as often illogical as the carpenter here? We too look for deliverance from the works of our own hands, so often undetected. This can be the idol of money. You work hard, you build more, you save more, you inoculate yourself with lots of money, and now you need it. You would say, I need money, but there's a problem. You turn to that extra money to save you, to deliver you now in this pandemic, and something's wrong, isn't it? And what is it? You're still angry. You're still scared. And it turns out money can't deliver you at all. What about the idol of entertainment? Oh, all that time, all that time spent building loyalty. 
the hours, the hours watching those games, your allegiance to that team. What about the time spent in stores, in theaters, at shows, on night outs, on getaways, all turned to for escapes and comforts, and now you're looking for returns, and what? It's gone. Stripped from your life. You turn to those things and you say, deliver me, but the only problem is they're gone. They're gone. Beloved, saying that, we must know there is nothing wrong inherently with any of those things. But there is something wrong with them when you turn to them for deliverance. And if COVID-19 has shown us anything, that maybe just maybe at times, as we coast through our lives, we have turned for escape, comfort, and deliverance from these idols. COVID-19, I know, has shown many of us that. We turn to these things for escape and comfort, and hence we're turning to them for deliverance. I had a hard day, give me entertainment. I need something, I'm desperate, give me money. And we turn to them as if they are idols. We turn to them as if they are deliverers. Yet now they're all stripped away, aren't they? They're all gone. To those and how many other created idols do we turn today? Like the craftsmen, do we turn to money? Do we turn to entertainment? Do we turn figuratively and say, deliver me for you are my God. Deliver me. Sure, we would never announce it that way, right? It's never so boisterous as that. However, we do feel that way, don't we? You feel it right now with those things stripped from you. And beloved, mark this. It is illogical. It is illogical to turn for comfort to something that can be taken away. It is illogical to turn for comfort to something that can be taken away because that's not comfort. That's not deliverance at all. Something that's so fleeting that can be stripped away in a matter of weeks, if not months. That's not a deliverer at all. Those idols and our turning to something lesser is no less backwards than the carpenter here. And that's because idolatry is illogical. That's to last one. Idolatry is not only empty, idolatry is not only illogical, idolatry is blinding. Idolatry is blinding. Let's pick up in verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burn in the fire. I also bake bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. Shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Again, what a picture. The final picture in this workshop here, summed up in verse 20. Look at verse 20. The idol maker, so busy, so exact, so occupied with his little creation, he now sits what? What's your final picture here? He sits feeding on ashes. His heart is deluded, and it's led him astray. And he's asking all kinds of questions. The idol's all allured with the promise of deliverance. However, the work of his hands cannot deliver. And now he looks at the ash-filled, empty workshop, and he says, is there not a lie in my right hand? How did he get here? How did he get here? The answer in these verses, look at it over and over again, blindness. Do you see it in these final verses? Blindness. This is what idolatry does. It blinds the heart and mind. Look at verse 18. It blinds discernment. It blinds the eyes. It blinds the heart. We're told in verse 19 that it even blinds consideration and knowledge. This is a widespread blindness that idolatry brings. In other words, as you see there, the common sense that would say, wait a minute, this is a log. 
I burned half of it for a fire. Now I'm going to fall down and worship the other half. That common sense is gone. The common sense to discern that with idolatry, we can't see anything. That is the sad and sinful picture of idolatrous worship. Sitting, deluded, bewildered in ashes. Wondering what happened. Like maybe you are today in this pandemic. Maybe it doesn't look as overt as this, as vivid as this, but maybe in the quietness of your soul, as you put your head on the pillow, as you just read that news item, as you consider what, what if, maybe you're feeling that right now. Maybe you're asking, how did I get here? I'm so scared. I'm so anxious. What's next? I have nothing to cling to. Maybe you realize now you've been looking to idols for deliverance. Maybe as you survey your craftsmanship, maybe as you tally the countless hours, the vast sums of money, the energy to the point of exhaustion, all that you've spent worshiping other things, maybe as you itemize that, all output, treasuring something in someone else, maybe today in light of God's word, you realize your wrong worship. If that is you coming to grips with your idolatry today, If you're asking, what do I do? I never saw it before, but now in this pandemic I do. I want to leave you with some encouragement in God's word. Because God never ends it there. God never just says, well look, that's who you are. And he never leaves you there. And you're going to see in this text he doesn't do that either. There's pointed application in the three verses that follow. This is amazing. As we close, three verses each with a helpful takeaway for us in dealing with our idolatry. How do we deal with idolatry in our life? Let's consider three ways as we close. First, look at verse 21. We remember. We remember. Verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. How do we deal with idolatry? First, we remember. God says, remember, O Israel. And here it is. What do you remember? That you are my servant. Idolatry is all about what we create and what's under us. And God says, remember this. Remember your position, Israel. I am here and you are my servant. Not the other way around. He says, remember, O Israel, I formed you. Uh, You didn't form me. You didn't create a God in your own image. I formed you. How quickly we forget our place and our position under God. That was Israel's problem as well in the wilderness, remember? Right here, and God kept reminding them and commanding them to remember. I think of whole chapters in the law, like Deuteronomy 8. You know that chapter where Moses is giving that second reading, that Deuteronomy second reading of the law to the next generation before he passes? What does he say over and over again in Deuteronomy 8? Verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Verse 18, you shall Remember the Lord your God. The whole point of Deuteronomy is to remember. Don't forget. Remember because we are prone to forget. Church idolatry can and will creep up on us if we fail to remember our God. And that means this. Let me make it simple math for you. Less time spent with God equals more time we'll likely forget him. Less time spent with God equals more time we likely forget him. Christian, if you want to combat idolatry, commit now during this pandemic to remember God after it. Be resolved in the pandemic to remember God after it. Not to get so busy again that you forget your God. We talked 
past few weeks how very soon things are going to be added back to your life. And again, Wes, might I ask, are you ready for that? It means you've got to be resolved now, resolved now to remember God. Build him back into your life and your routines and your rhythms. Be resolved now to remember. That's one help. Two, look at verse 22. Remember to repent. Look at verse 22. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. God says, return to me. That's your classic Old Testament call for God's people to repent. You see it over and over again. Return to me. Return to me. I initiated. I'm your people. You've strayed. Return to me. Come back to me, the Lord says. Not so I can get out my big stick, right? That's what God says. Come back to me. And if you do, I will have mercy on you. I'll be tender with you. But verse 22, look at this. Return to me for I have redeemed you. You talk about what to remember. I, look at the language. I have delivered you. You look at that word deliverance. It's what we've turned to everything else for, right? In fact, I I think I've lost track of the things people have turned to in this pandemic for deliverance. What this doctor said, how much toilet paper, how much grocery, what this new theory is. I've lost track of the small g gods for deliverance. God's, it's almost like God says to his people, wait a minute. I have delivered you. It's done. It's done. Your deliverer is right before you. God is the only deliverer. That's because God has dealt with our sins, the only deliverance we need. Sins like idolatry. In verse 22, he reminds us people that he has blotted out their transgression. Look at it, like a cloud, and their sins like a mist, gone. That is complete deliverance. Deliverance, it feels non-existent in times of COVID-19, does it not? But God says, I've delivered you. You have everything you need in me. Christian, if you want to combat idolatry, repent right now. Repent now. Forsake that idol now. That means stop looking to it. Stop worshiping it. Stop wondering when you're going to get it back. Stop considering it, planning for it. Stop giving it your time and energy. The Bible says, God says, your creator says it's idolatry. Enjoy the blessing God has given you now. And one great blessing right now, beloved, is that you see it. Is that you see it. And the opportunity our Lord has afforded for you to repent right now. Praise God for that opportunity. Repent. Thirdly, we remember, we repent. Third, we replace. Look at verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Westmount, I've said this so many times here. Bear with me. I've said a lot of things we talk about a lot at Westmount. But let me ask you this again. Many of you know this. When is a thief no longer a thief? When is a thief no longer a thief? Some of you are saying right now, well, when he stops stealing. That's the right answer. When he stops stealing, well, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's a thief in between jobs. In between jobs. Ephesians 4.28 says, the thief is no longer a thief when he is no longer stealing. When he is laboring, doing honest work with his own hands. Do you see that? The thief is no longer a thief when he has replaced that behavior with another. And that same principle applies to idolatry. When does idolatry stop? When the idols are taken away like now? Beloved, don't stay there. Don't just say, well, now in COVID-19, I don't have those idols, so I'm okay. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Soon, they're just going to come right back into your life. 
No, our, our idolatry stops when we replace that wrong worship. Here it is with right worship, right worship. Like here in verse 23, instead of shouting to our idols for what they can do, we replace here in verse 23, we instead shout to the Lord and sing loud for what he has done. Instead of crying to small g gods for deliverance that we hope for in them, we sing praises to the one that's already delivered us. We replace our worship. It's when we join that chorus in the heavens, it says, verse 23, the Lord will be glorified. Not our idols, not us, not the created, but the creator. Christian, you defeat idolatry when you replace idolatrous worship with worship of the one true triune God, the only one worthy of praise. Westmount, let's stop looking everywhere for deliverance from these lesser gods and turn our focus squarely on the one who's already delivered us and hence the only one worthy of worship. And when you do that, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear because you're in Christ. You're already delivered. No matter what happens on this earth. Fittingly then, we only have one final response, do we not? With a chapter like this. Fittingly, let us now come and worship him. Let us sing to him. Let us give him the only thing. The only thing that he is due. And that is worship. He's due everything in our worship. Worship means not just a song. It means our whole lives. We give that to him. No other worship satisfies or sustains, pandemic or not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth in your word that you, Father, call on those that have been idolatrous. You call on those that have been rebellious. You call on those that have strayed from you. Lord, you don't leave us in our idol workshops. God, you call us back. You call us to remember. You call us to repent. You call us to replace. God, may we do so. God, may you have mercy on our souls as we seek to give you what you alone are due. And that is worship, Lord, our exclusive worship in all things. Oh God, help us to kill the idols in our lives. Help us to forsake them and replace them with ongoing worship, complete and total worship of you in all of our lives. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.